living his dream, kicking for Ohio State from 50 for the win and a spot in the national championship game. It's on the way. No good. He hooked it. And Georgia is going to survive. a couple of times tonight and Noah Ruggles knowing he's got to drive it from 50 just kind of over kicks it loses his technique there and misses badly left and you talked about the potential dream of a kicker to win it that's that's the other side of it that's the tough part I don't know anything about kicking but sometimes on those longer kicks it feels like that you know when they, they yeah. try to to put too much into it well, you play golf right you, you try to yeah. <laughs> but the the ball, it just it didn't even have a good rotation. No. Right? He just he just lost it. Is right from uh, the time it left his foot. Welcome to the Chatting Yardage Podcast, presented by Sports Drink. Now here's your host, Cam Matthews. Welcome to your friendly neighborhood college football podcast. Welcome to Chatting Yardage, part of the Chatting Average family and brought to you by our friends at Sports Strength. Hello, everybody. Welcome once again to the show. I am your host, Mr. Cam Matthews. You can find me on Twitter at HeyCam93. You can also follow the show, be part of the conversation at Chatting Yardage. Well, then there was one. That's right. Looking down the road, one game left on the docket officially for the 2022 college football season. And as as bowl season, you know, wraps itself up and, you know, packs itself with a nice little bow here at the end of the year, I got to say, and this may be, you know, this may be recency bias. You know, they say that things always seem best in the moment, you know, that, that sort of thing. But it may be recency bias, but I will say that this year's bowl season has been as exciting and as engaging of a bowl season as I remember in several years. So we'll go ahead and take a quick look at some of the scores, uh, starting, of course, with last week's pick six games of the week. As always, these are six games that I found interesting and I believe you should have as well. Starting off, we'll look at the Gator Bowl, number 21, Notre Dame, against number 19, South Carolina. Good back-and-forth contest here. The Irish pull away late for a final score of 45-38, to seemingly salvaging what was still a disappointing year, all things considered, especially when you think about where that team was uh, was expected to kind of end up this year and where a lot of people kind of slated them uh but you know nonetheless they come away with a bowl win against a, a very a very good very uh promising South Carolina team who put up a heck of a fight in this one you know both teams going back and forth you know trading leads that sort of thing just a fun watch uh last week in the Gator Bowl now over to the Orange Bowl which was as orange as orange could possibly be, number six, Tennessee, takes on number seven, Clemson. 31-14 to 14 is your final score there in favor of the Tennessee Volunteers. Uh, th- this game was ugly. I don't think there's really any other way to, to dance around that. This was an absolutely ugly game. Uh, Clemson in the first half, and I think you know by the end of the game, really, uh, was in you know was in the lead in terms of 
offensive stats uh, in this contest, but they just couldn't score. They could not score. And in fact, I believe in the first half, they had six trips to the red zone, came away with one field goal. And unfortunately, against a high-octane offense like Tennessee, that is not going to be enough to get the win there. So Tennessee comes away, good bowl win in the Orange Bowl. Uh, you know, caps off what was uh, kind of a highlight year for them, really, when you think about it. Uh, you think about the win over Alabama. Uh, you think about the fact that they made the top four at one point. But a couple of disappointing losses down the stretch uh, did them in. But being able to come away with a bowl win, having a lot of high, highly touted recruits coming in. You know, the Tennessee team, I don't think, is going anywhere. They're really building themselves up right now. Uh, whereas, you know, Clemson, there's still some questions on that team. So it'll be interesting to see how they do in the ACC next year with no uh, no divisions anymore in the conference. Now over to the Sugar Bowl. Number five, Alabama against number nine, Kansas State. Kansas State jumped out to a 10 to nothing lead. And the next thing you knew, it was 35 to 10 in favor of the Crimson Tide. 45 to 20 is your final score there. Uh, you know, Kansas State looked good for about the first 10 or so minutes of this game. And then Alabama, their numbers and their size was just too much uh, for for the Cats. But, uh, you know, still a solid season for Kansas State. Alabama came in playing like they had a chip on their shoulder. And obviously, you know, despite playing in a New Year's Six Bowl, despite playing in the Sugar Bowl, this is a disappointing year for them because it is playoff or bust for a program like that. Uh, but nonetheless, they still come away with a Sugar Bowl victory. Now on to... The remaining three games from last week's pick six, and uh, boy, two of them lived up to the hype, finally. So on to the first semifinal game in the Fiesta Bowl, number three TCU against number two Michigan. A surprising game uh, through and through. You know, the very first offensive play of the game, Michigan rattles down the field, 50-something yards, looks like, uh uh-oh. Uh, they might run away with this one, but then sure enough, here comes the Horn Frogs with solid defense, a good uh, a good goal line stand seemingly against Michigan, and then the Frogs take over. You know, you're talking about a game that TCU has two pick sixes. You're talking about a game in which uh, you know Michigan really didn't find it until the fourth quarter, but still made it interesting, and they lose by one score. Heck of a game, uh, you know, a surprise from beginning to end, and uh, the Horn Frogs make it to the national championship. One of the more unlikely national championship contenders we've seen in a very long time uh, especially in in the playoff era really uh, TCU becomes the first Texas University to make the playoff uh, and you're talking about just an incredible year for Sonny Dykes and company and just an incredible game uh, for TCU in the playoff once again Michigan stumbles in the semifinals and you know despite having an impressive season despite clearly looking like at least the second best team in the country they fall apart uh, right here at the finish line, and you know he's got to make you wonder: was it uh, was it a mental thing? Was it just a preparation thing? Uh, nonetheless, TCU comes away with the victory, and they will go on to face number one Georgia, who defeated number four Ohio State in the Peach Bowl, the other semifinal game, 42-41, a thrilling game. This one was uh, Ohio State led by as much as uh, I believe ten points at, at one point, or at least by a couple of scores. Uh, Georgia managed to claw their way back, had a uh, had a late game-winning drive by Stetson Bennett, and then Ohio State likewise marches down the field, puts themselves in prime position for a field goal, and a missed field goal does them in. Forty-two, forty-one is your final there. Georgia makes it back to the national championship game uh, a year after after winning it. But now, uh, now here comes a good challenge in TCU, and we're going to talk about that a lot on this episode. 
But I think, you know, the one thing I want to talk about is that this is year number nine of the playoff, meaning we've had 18 playoff games. Only three of those have been decided by one score. Two of them occurred this year. So, you know, this is without a doubt the greatest playoff rounds in terms of semifinals that we've had since the institution of the college football playoff. Uh, Just tremendous, tremendously entertaining games on New Year's Eve. And then, uh, and they were were just a blast to watch. So wherever you were watching, uh, I'm sure you had a great time as well. Now over to game number six from last week's pick six, the Rose Bowl game. Number 11, Penn State takes down number eight, Utah. 35-21 is your final score there. Uh, You know, once Penn State got scoring, it it pretty much slipped out of Utah's hands. Uh, It never felt like Penn State was in any real danger of losing this one. Kind of unfortunate, not the most competitive game you've ever seen, uh, but nonetheless, the Nittany Lions finish what is, you know, really an impressive season. They finish with 11 wins uh, against Utah, and they just have the uh, the unfortunate luck of playing in the same conference as Michigan and Ohio State. You know, I said it last week, Penn State, for all, you know, for all accounts and purposes, had a tremendous season. It's just those two losses to the big brothers of the conference, so to speak, that uh, that kind of diminished their year. But you come away with a record of 11-2 and two at the end of the year. You've done something right. Go ahead and take a look at our other scores in the Sun Bowl. Pitt defeats UCLA, 37-35 there. Good, uh, good back-and-forth contest. In a very ugly game, in the Dukes-Mayo Bowl, Maryland defeats NC State 16-12. NC State's offensive woes continues. Uh, as they only finished the day with four field goals, never reaching the end zone. Maryland, meanwhile, 16 points on the board, nothing to write home about. Just an ugly kind of game, back and forth, uh, you know, for for a, a bowl that is, you know, very fun going into. They have a great social media presence, but not a good game uh, whatsoever. In the Arizona Bowl, Ohio defeats Wyoming 30-27. to Good shootout there. Music City Bowl, another ugly game that... By golly, if you watch this, all credit to you as Iowa defeats Kentucky 21 to nothing. That's right, 21 to nothing. Kentucky fails to score against, obviously, one of the better defenses in the entire country and then allows 21 points to one of the worst offenses in the country in Iowa. And then, you know, for my money, the the absolute game of the year in terms of the uh, bowl season goes, uh, you know, might be a close second to Ohio State, Georgia. Tulane defeats USC 46-45 in the Cotton Bowl. Tulane comes storming from behind, scores, I believe, 16 points in the final four minutes, uh, 16 or 17 points, something along those lines. Just a tremendous game by the Green Wave, a tremendous season by the Green Wave. And USC uh, continues to not be able to win the big one. And Lincoln Riley continues to not be able to win the big one. You know, this is a coach that just doesn't seem to find defense necessary, and it showed here in this game. But hats off to Tulane and uh, and Willie Fritz for their season that they've had. Uh, Citrus Bowl, absolute wash. LSU defeats Purdue 63-7 to is your final score there. Uh, nothing really to write about in that one. LSU scored and scored often in this one, and Purdue uh, just managed to find a touchdown toward the end. And then in the ReliaQuest Bowl, Mississippi State, in honor of their former head coach Mike Leach, defeats Illinois 19-10, to a game that was tied 
I believe, with about a minute to go. And uh, Mississippi State able to kick a game-winning field goal and then returned a pick six. Well, not really a pick six. I'm more of a, a fumble uh, as Illinois tried the uh, tried the old lateral play as time expired. But nonetheless, Mississippi State able to uh, put a, a good, happy feeling on the end of what was a bit of a tragic uh, tragic month for them as they lost uh, lost Mike Leach uh, unexpectedly, but nonetheless able to uh, put together a bowl win against an Illinois team that you know showed good flashes this year. But you know, I think the most poetic thing about it all is that Mississippi State won at uh, at Raymond James Stadium in Tampa Bay, where there, of course there is a pirate ship in the stadium. Well, that's, a, that's enough of me rambling and reviewing scores. We've got a lot to talk about as we head into the national championship game this coming Monday night. So we'll go ahead and kick off into this week's first segment. This is Four Down Territory. First down. As Ohio State kicker Noah Ruggles lined up to attempt the game-winning 50-yard field goal, midnight approached on the East Coast. As millions waited for the ball to drop and a new year to kick in, a rocking day of college football hurtled toward a crescendo. Georgia led Ohio State by one point, 42-41, and Kirby Smart called a timeout to attempt to ice Ruggles. A den of fear, loathing, and anticipation filled Mercedes-Benz Stadium, the perfect emotional cocktail for a semifinal day the sport had waited nearly a decade to unfold in such a manner. College football playoff executive director Bill Hancock stood unassumingly near the goal line where Ohio State was attempting to kick. He declared victory before a victor had even been decided. What a great day for college football, he beamed. The first wire-to-wire riveting semifinal day the sport had seen came right as the current system is on the cusp of ending. It's the second to last year of the current four-team format as too many blowouts in the prior eight seasons had led, in part, to the sport expanding to a 12-team playoff starting in the 2024 season. The four-team system was too predictable, and then along came two games that no one could have seen coming. Ruggles shanked his field goal left, a knuckleball to sputter in the new year. Georgia took a knee one time, and the game ended at 12.01 a.m., one of the great days in recent history of the sport taking the span of two different years to complete. Fittingly, the drama just couldn't quite fit in one year. The missed field goal set off a wild Georgia celebration in the middle of the field, the final reminder of how riveting, excruciating, and confounding college football can actually be. On the outskirts of Phoenix, TCU swaggered in as a a 7.5-point underdog earlier in the day and unleashed one of the most bedeviling upsets in recent history of the sport. The number 3 Horned Frogs never flinched, unfurling 51 points on a defense that allowed an average of 13.4 points per game this season. In downtown Atlanta, number 4 Ohio State appeared poised to clinch the game in the final minute of the third quarter until a game-changing hit by Georgia's Javon Bullard prevented a touchdown and knocked star Ohio State wideout Marvin Harrison Jr. from the game. That hit changed the course of the night for Georgia and could be the pivot point if it clinches back-to-back national titles. The number one Bulldogs will play number three TCU for the national title, with Georgia looking to become the sport's first to win back-to-back titles in a decade since Alabama last accomplished the double in 2012. TCU will be in search of the program's first national title since 1938, and they'll invite anyone to assume they're just SEC fodder. Just ask Michigan quarterback J.J. McCarthy, who cast them as Big Ten chump. Actually, you couldn't, because he bolted from his press conference after one question in wake of the law, sounding a lot less lofty 
than in his pregame prediction of Michigan pushing around TCU. A day that began dreaming of the Big Ten having a pair of teams in a national title game ended with the league going empty-handed. The league's focus goes from the anticipatory euphoria of the conference's first national title since 2014 to the leadership questions hovering over the league, with Commissioner Kevin Warren having interviewed to become the president of the Chicago Bears. It only took one minute into 2023 for the Big Ten's issues to be ushered to the forefront. In Atlanta, a pall of missed opportunity hung over the Ohio State locker room. Gene Smith walked out of the locker room, hugged Ryan's day wife, Nina, and ambled off into the night, shaking his head in disbelief. Staffers muttered about the same hollow feeling that emerged back in 2019 when Ohio State squandered multiple opportunities to beat a Trevor Lawrence-led Clemson team. The players and coaches dwelled on all the little things. The squandered effort of quarterback C.J. Stroud, who threw for 348 yards, four touchdowns, and suddenly channeled his inner Braxton Miller with a flurry of second-half scrambles. They bemoaned the squandered effort in the interior of Ohio State's offensive line, which neutralized Jalen Carter. They wondered what could have been different if not for Harrison's absence at the offense went stagnant in the fourth quarter. There was, of course, the missed field goal that would have won the game, the overturned targeting call on the Harrison hit that would have given Ohio State a first and goal, the defensive collapse in the fourth quarter after battering Georgia's offensive line to shut them out in the third quarter. But the most searing what-if and likely the best coaching counter of the night came when Ohio State appeared to have executed a fake punt in the fourth quarter. On a fourth and one, on its own 34-yard line, Ohio State sneaked two offensive linemen onto its punt team for the first time this season. Guard Donovan Jackson and backup Josh Fryer. The Buckeyes were up 11 points and tied in Mitch Rossi appeared to sprint toward a first down that would have given them the ball near midfield. A split second before the snap, and I mean a split second, Georgia head coach Kirby Smart called a timeout. In the second half of the Michigan game, Ohio State had a similar play called, and but the long snapper missed the call, and with it, a wide open lane for a first down that could have changed the game. The photos of the missed opportunity live in Twitter lore, and Fleming could only shake his head. Different formation, a little different personnel, he said. Similar, sumer- similar sum- scenario, I guess. And that's what happens with classic games. The stakes get so high that the momentum shifts violently. And the loser can only dwell on all the things that could have been, as Stroud referenced a heavy heart leaving the field. It's a loss for words, Stroud said, when it comes down to one play. After a day of 179 total points, 2,016 total yards, and infinite hairpin turns of momentum, midnight struck, and the whole sport was close to speechless. A day of semifinal games that historically left viewers bored and unsatisfied ended in dramatic fireworks. Finally, the drama matched the stakes, and the sport got a celebratory semifinal day that had been long overdue. Second down. Go ahead, admit it. You didn't think they'd do it. Not TCU, the team seemingly everyone outside of Fort Worth, Texas had been predicting to lose after week one. Oh, sure, the college football playoff semifinal at the Verbo Fiesta Bowl was going to be a good game, but could TCU actually win? Nah, Michigan was going to roll. Well, instead, it rolled over. 
Few, if any, gave number three TCU much of a shot to be here, and that might have been motivation enough for the Frogs to advance to the college football national championship game, where they will face defending national champion in number one Georgia, January 9th at SoFi Stadium. Following a remarkable comeback against number four Ohio State in the CFP semifinal, Georgia can become the first program again to win back-to-back national titles since 2012. Since 1990, the only other schools to win back-to-back titles are Nebraska and USC. With Georgia's win on Saturday, the program matched 2015-2016 Alabama team for the most wins over a two-season span in SEC history with 28. There's no question it's going to be a monumental challenge for TCU, which went 5-7 just a year ago and didn't win its conference title game this year. But insurmountable? This team of underdogs that has picked to finish 7th in the Big 12 is used to the doubts. All season long, right up until the clock expired at the Fiesta Bowl, TCU has exceeded expectations. Sure, the beloved frogs have captured the country's attention, riding the psychedelic wave of something called a hypnotoad. Sincere respect has been a little tougher to come by. If back-to-back wins against Michigan and Georgia don't do it, then nothing will. While Georgia is in the midst of building the sport's next dynasty, TCU is trying to win the program's first national title in 83 years. TCU has an opportunity to become the first team to be unranked in the preseason AP Bowl and win the national title since Georgia Tech in 1990. Not that anyone outside of Fort Worth will be giving the Frogs much of a chance to actually do it. So, let's take a look. How did these two teams actually get here? As mentioned, the Horned Frogs were finished to pick 7th. 7th in the Big 12. Instead, the Frogs became the first Big 12 team since 2009 to complete the regular season with a 12-0 record, but it rarely came easily. The Horned Frogs repeatedly flirted with disaster, winning five games this season when trailing after halftime, but ended the regular season with perfection. Despite a heroic effort from quarterback Max Duggan, TCU lost to Kansas State 31-28 in overtime in the Big 12 championship game. The Frogs couldn't have picked a better way to lose, though, a close game to a ranked opponent they had defeated earlier in the season. TCU was still able to boast a win against the Big 12 champions, an important claim to impress the selection committee and maintain its number three ranking without a conference title. Sonny Dykes has elevated the Frogs' offense to one of the nation's best, and Duggan has emerged as one of the most prolific deep ball passers with an FBS leading 13 completions of at least 50 yards. Now over to Georgia. After winning the program's first national title since the 1980 seasons, Questions immediately surfaced if Georgia could do it again, this time without five first-round NFL draft picks who left the defense. Well, here the Bulldogs are again, just one step away. It began in the season opener with a complete dismantling of Oregon within a 49-3 win that continued to resonate through Selection Day. When the Bulldogs defeated then number one Tennessee on November 5th, they established themselves as the clear-cut number one team in the eyes of the selection committee and never gave anyone a reason to doubt it. With a commanding 50-30 win over LSU in the SEC championship game, Georgia cemented its place in the CFP again thanks to another stellar defense and leadership of quarterback Stetson Bennett. The defense entered the semifinal allowing the second-fewest points per game in the FBS. Third down. 
Of course, this show is all about previewing the national championship game, so for third down, we're going to review just some fun facts about these two teams, TCU and Georgia. First off, the last time that TCU and Georgia played each other was the 2016 Liberty Bowl. Georgia won that game 31-23. to The last time an SEC team met a Big 12 team in the national championship was Alabama versus Texas in 2010, where Alabama won 37-21. TCU has one Heisman winner in its history. That was Davey O'Brien in 1938, whereas Georgia has two, Frank Sinkwich in 1942 and Herschel Walker in 1982. Both schools had Heisman finalists this year with Max Duggan and Stetson Bennett. Georgia had their first football season in 1892. TCU had theirs in 1896. Georgia has three claimed national titles, 1942, 1980, and last year, 2021, compared to TCU's two in 35 and 38. These teams have only met each other five times, including the upcoming national title game, where the Bulldogs currently are 4-0 all-time against the Horned Frogs. The two have met previously in a New Year's Six Bowl, That was the Orange Bowl all the way back in 1942, where Georgia would win 40-26, capping off a 9-1-1 season. Next year's Georgia Heisman winner Frank Sinkwich rushed for 139 yards on 22 carries and was 9-for-13 passing for 245 yards and 3 touchdowns. All doing this with his mouth wired shut due to a broken jaw. According to ESPN, Sonny Dykes would be the first head coach since since 1892 to win 14-plus games in his first season as a head coach since George Washington Woodruff did so with the Penn Quakers. Coach Dykes currently sits at 13 wins, of course, in his first season with TCU. TCU's most recent national title win dates back to 1938, where they defeated the number 6 Carnegie Tech Tartans in the Sugar Bowl, winning 15-7. That TCU team had Hall of Fame quarterback Davey O'Brien, Heisman winner, and has a quarterback national award named after him, coincidentally won by Max Duggan this season. Carnegie Tech, now known as Carnegie Mellon, is now a highly respected D3 football team who just lost in the second round of the NCAA D3 tournament. TCU would be the first school formerly part of a G5 conference, Mountain West, Conference USA, and Western Athletic, to both appear and potentially win a national title in the modern era. They are also only the third team in college football history to go from a losing season to the BCS slash college football playoff. Fourth down. Celebratory food showers are a creative twist on the victory bath college football bowl season serves up to winning coaches and players. A handful of bowl game sponsors award the winning team's players and lucky fans the opportunity to douse coaches with cereal, cheese crackers, creamy spreads, and other food stuff. They may require dedicated cleanup efforts afterward, but the post-game ceremonies provide memorable visuals. How much of any food can fill a cooler? Our math for the measurements is based on filling a 7-gallon drink cooler, which equates to 896 ounces. We've crunched the numbers to see the amount of mayonnaise and other substances dumped on college football's finest during bowl season. So here's a quick look at some of the most notable and edible celebrations. In the Duke's Mayo Bowl, the Maryland Terrapins take down the NC State Wolfpack 16-12. This year, the Mayo Dumpers did their job. Maryland coach Mike Loxley, wearing an oversized hat, got the condiment bath after the Terps came out on top in an ugly game that had four turnovers. 
Duke's Mayo became the sponsor of the bowl, formerly known as the Belk Bowl, before the 2020 bowl season. Dumping mayonnaise on the winningest coach has now become an anticipated part of bowl season. Last year, however, it didn't go well for South Carolina Gamecocks coach Shane Beamer following a 38-21 win over North Carolina. I got hammered in the back of the head with a cooler, and then came the mayo, Beamer said after the game. I may have a concussion. It was awful. So Duke's Mayo Bowl set out to find new mayo dumpers for 2022. Much like the college football playoff, we have a very dedicated and serious committee that reviewed reviewed entries, debated, and eventually selected our winners. Mayo dumpers, by nature, needed to be able to lift and dump a large cooler of mayonnaise. We were also looking for those who could show their fandom of both college football and Duke's mayor. Miller Yoho, Director of Communications and Marketing for the Charlotte Sports Foundation, told ESPN via email. On December 6th, Allison Vick and Kevin DeVock were named as the new Mayo Dumpers for the 2022 Mayo Bowl. It feels like a dream. If there's a better way to ring in the new year, I just can't imagine it, Vick told ESPN. Never in a million years would I have expected to be chosen to dump a tub of mayo on someone on national television, DeVock also said to ESPN. Now over to the Tony the Tiger Sun Bowl, where Pitt took down UCLA. The Sun Bowl being played for the 89th time is one of the, is one of the older bowls in college football. Kellogg's Frosted Flakes has been the sponsor since 2019. A late field goal, one of five for Pitt kicker Ben Sauls, gave the Panthers the win. The Panthers players got to dump the classic cereal after the game. In 2021, Central Michigan Chippewas head coach Jim McElvain enjoyed a Frosted Flakes deluge courtesy of his players after a 24-21 win over Washington State. In the Cheez-It Bowl, Cheez-It, of course, became the 2020s became the sponsor of the game in 2020, which began as the Blockbuster Bowl all the way back in 1990. Last year, Clemson Tiger head coach Dabo Sweeney enjoyed a lightly toasted cheese cracker bath after a 20-13 win over Iowa State. This year, Florida State and Oklahoma traded the lead four times in the second half, with the Seminoles sacking quarterback Dylan Gabriel on the final drive to hold off a comeback bid. Mike Morvell got a cheese at bat to remember as the clock ticked down to zero. So, just how many Cheez-It crackers? Well, it takes nearly 72 boxes at 12.4 ounces of Cheez-Its to fill a sideline drink cooler. And then, in the famous Idaho Potato Bowl, the Eastern Michigan Eagles defeat San Jose State 41-27. Since its inception in 1997, this game, known by its current name since 2011, has taken place in Boise, Idaho, the potato capital of the world. So it's only natural that its post-game celebration includes food made from the plant. In the 2022 edition, Eagles quarterback Taylor Powell finished with 298 passing yards, two touchdowns, and one interception, while running back Samson Evans led the team on the ground with 82 yards rushing and two scores. According to ESPN Stats and Information, Eastern Michigan's 41 points are the most it has scored in a bowl game in program history. It's also the team's first bowl victory since the 1987 California Bowl. Eagles coach Chris Creighton received the post-game potato bath after the victory. So, how many French fries does it take to fill a cooler? Well, based on this math, a large fry container from McDonald's is 5.9 ounces. According to BuzzFeed Analysis, comparing McDonald's food sizes, it would take roughly 152 orders of fries to fill up a cooler. Hey everybody, this is Alex Butler here with this week's Mascot Minute, where we take a deep dive into some of your favorite collegiate mascots. This week, 
We're featuring one of the darlings of the 2022 bowl season, the Tulane University Green Wave. On October 20th, 1920, Earl Sparling, the editor of the Tulane Hullabaloo, wrote a football song which was printed in the newspaper. The song was titled, The Rolling Green Wave. Although the name was not immediately adopted, it began to receive acceptance. A month later, a report of the Tulane-Mississippi A&M game in the Hullabaloo referred to the team as the Green Wave. By the end of the season, the Hullabaloo was using the term Green Wave to refer to all Tulane athletic teams, as were many daily papers. Although as late as 1923, the name Greenbacks was still in use. In its infancy, Tulane's mascot was depicted as a pelican riding on a surfboard. The surfing pelican image lasted for more than 50 years. The Greenie was adopted in 1955. It was created by John Chase, a local cartoonist who drew the covers of the Tulane football program and those of many teams throughout the South. When Dr. Rick's yard became the athletic director in 1963, he felt Tulane needed a better symbol for its teams. Working with Eldon Endicott, the manager of the Tulane bookstore, he arranged for a new mascot to be created. Several sketches were submitted by Art Evans, art director for Angeles Pacific Company in Fullerton, California. The angry looking wave was adopted in 1964 and the block T with the waves became the Tulane Athletics logo in 1986. Tulane unveiled a new family of marks in August 1998. The new logos featured the return of the pelican to the green wave look, along with the use of a T with a modern wave as a primary logo mark. A new pelican mascot was introduced and given the name Riptide by a vote of Tulane students. Are there any mascots that you'd like us to feature on the show? Hit us up at Chatting Yardage on Twitter to let us know. Once again, this has been Alex Butler with your Mascot Minute. All right, we're going to jump into this week's pick six games of the week. Six games that I... Well, okay, well, I can't really do pick six this week because, of course, there's only one game left on the docket. That's number three, TCU going up against number one, Georgia, in the national championship game this Monday, 7.30 p.m. on ESPN from SoFi Stadium in Inglewood, California, where guess what? You're not allowed to tailgate. A horrible, horrible decision made by SoFi Stadium in the city of Inglewood uh, to not allow college, college football fans to tailgate before the game, but that's your one game to look forward to. We've talked about it at, at you know at nauseum already this this episode. Uh, Georgia at this point at, of recording is a twelve and a half point favorite, but again, many people have counted the Horn Frogs out. Many people have been wrong this year. It feels fun to go into a national championship game, really not knowing what's going to happen here. Who knows? I don't know if either you know if either decision could really shock me at this point given how both of these teams have played this year and how TCU has defined, has you know defied the odds, but how Georgia has just been dominant all season. So that's the only game I've got to uh, got a preview for you. That's the last game we have to watch this year. But, but, I promised it last week, so we're going to go ahead and dive into this this week. Over the next couple of days, be sure to keep an eye on the Chatting Yardage Twitter account 
we have some postseason awards that we need you to be a part of. So here's how this is going to work. I'm going to post a nomination thread for each and every one of the awards we're about to go over. In that thread, I need you to reply and throw out your nomination. Then, on Tuesday, the day after the national championship game, we will put up an official poll for 24 hours highlighting the top four nominees of each category we're about to go over. And then on next week's episode, our final episode of the year, after we, uh, you know, after we talk about the national championship game, we will review our award winners uh, for the season. So what are those award categories? Well, I'm glad you asked. First award of the, of the year we're going to pass out is the Coach of the Year Award. Uh, this is your chance to talk about what coach you think uh, has has done just a tremendous job with the team that he has. You know, is it a coach that has gone undefeated? Is it a coach that has overachieved? You know, that sort of thing. Uh, so I'm, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that because, you know, I, I think it's easy to lean towards one person, but there are a lot of other uh, good good coaches out there that I think could be worthy of an award such as that. Second award we're going to hand out is the Inspiration of the Year. College football is filled with fun stories each and every single year, and we've highlighted a lot of them here on the show this season. So I want to hear yours. I want to know what you think was the most inspiring story of the year. Is it an athlete? Is it a team that came together during a challenging time? Is it a family uh, that was able to defy some odds? You know, there's a lot to talk about there, so I'm interested to hear your thoughts. Award number three is the Game of the Year, and, and you know, some, some of us may hold off until after the national championship game to throw out nominations there but boy it has been a season of exciting contests all year long so game of the year is your third award award number four overachiever of the year which team has won beyond all belief be you know won beyond all uh, all estimations and guesstimates before the year started now of course it is easy to point out one specific team as the overachiever of the year but i think really when you think about it there are some others that have done really well this year seemingly out of nowhere and then award number five, the underachiever of the year. Which team should have done so much better than they actually did? Which team sti- you know, tripped and fumbled and stumbled all the way to the finishing line? Which team truly just underachieved this year? Uh, not an award I think a team wants to get, but we're going to hand it out anyway. And then finally, of course... Number six award that we're gonna that we're gonna announce next week is the Player of the Year award. Which player do you think is the National Player of the Year? Who deserves it? Who has had the best season out of any other player in all of college football? We'll discuss that next week. Again, be on the lookout, be part of the conversation, make your voice heard for these awards as we finish out the year at on Twitter at Chatting Yardage. The extra point. Shane Beamer, who guided South Carolina to an eight-win season that included wins over top ten foes Tennessee and Clemson, is set to receive a new deal and a raise of nearly $4 million per year, sources have told ESPN. A board of trustees meeting is scheduled for Friday afternoon, and on the agenda is the approval of athletics contracts. Beamer's deal is expected to be finalized at that meeting and will average in the $6.5 million range annually. He's slated to earn around $6 million in 2023, and his salary will increase each year from there. The hefty raise signifies a major commitment to the 45-year-old Beamer and a strong show of support by the university in the direction the program is headed under Beamer. He was previously the lowest-paid head coach in the SEC at $2.75 million and one of the lowest-paid head coaches in the Power 5 ranks. So playing us out this week is the South Carolina Marching Band with their fight song, The Fighting Gamecocks Lead the Way.
Until next week, I'm Cam Matthews. This has been the Chatting Yardage Podcast, brought to you by Sports Drink. Want to be part of the conversation? Follow the show on Twitter at Chatting Yardage. We'll see you next week for another brand new episode.